Caroline Goldman, épisode 1, Gifted Children. Hi, I'm Caroline Goldman and I'm a psychologist for children and teenagers based in Paris. I published several books and I've been teaching for more than five years in college. This podcast is about informing parents or any stakeholder involved in the well-being of children. Today, we'll be talking about gifted children, as we call children with high IQs. We'll be looking at the issue from different perspectives, neuroscientific, epidemiological, psychosocial, and psychopathological. And it is worth mentioning, you'll see the conclusions all concur. This summary is meant more for child psychologists and psychiatrists, but the gist of it will be of interest to any professional or to any parent interested in the topic. The main questions this podcast answers are Do gifted children suffer? Why do the media convey wrong ideas? What do these children have in common? Should the degree of intelligence be measured? Which therapeutic strategies can be considered to ease the lives of these children? Welcome to my podcast. Enjoy! Caroline Goldman All children with an IQ score higher than 130 in distress. No, they are not. In any case, nothing proves it. Our society loves medical labels, including the rather peculiar idea that having a high IQ is some kind of illness associated with typical personality traits and more or less painful symptoms. This concept has been taking quite a lot of space over the last 15 years. We know today that this view has been distorted by a selection bias. Psychologists, by definition, only see the children in distress and do not come across many highly gifted children in good psychological health. In other words, to generalize observations from their appointments is not a valid way of defining a typical gifted children profile. And where would you say this misunderstanding comes from? I believe the misunderstanding stems from the conjunction of two realities. On one hand, there are parents who are suffering from seeing their child suffer with no apparent reason, And, on the other hand, there's a certain laziness on the part of psychologists who are a little light on psychopathological insight and are pretty happy to reassure their patients by being the bearer of good news. Also, let's face it, they're pretty glad to make a good living out of it since giving IQ tests is an easy and lucrative task. Producing scores is very easy, as well as linking the problematic characteristics of a child to their intellectual capacity in the figures. It is quite daring, isn't it? To find an illness where there is none and to make a business out of it, including, just five years ago, pressure for systematic testing. Fortunately, we did not reach that point. So, quite daring, but as you know, in a crowd, there's always someone who paves the way for others. In 2008, Jeanne Siou-Fachon, after a career in advertising, published a book with this catchy title, Too Smart to be Happy. In my opinion, it popularized this idea as effectively as good marketing, because obviously parents prefer to consider their child as superiorly intelligent rather than in pain and symptomatic. It's easier for a therapist to say, and for a patient to hear, that a child is disruptive in class because, and I quote, They are so much more intelligent than everyone else, which puts them ahead of their classmates and makes it impossible for them to bear the boredom, end quote. Then to say for the therapist and to hear for the parents 
your child is depressed because you're not present enough in their daily life and they lack love and affection. That's what makes them burst out at school because the separation reactivates and increases their need for your presence. They're crying out for more love, so come home earlier in the evening and solve your couple and family's problems that are probably making you all want to escape your family life. We'll work on it together, if you agree. Or your child is going ballistic because of your hovering. You're too involved. You satisfy their every need. You pay them way too much attention. You talk too much. They need more distance to calm down. As a result, they are transferring the agitation of your overparenting onto their social life, where their teachers and peers can't cope with it. End quote. This is trickier to say. However, it's your job as therapists. It takes courage and a lot of qualification and training. Ever since this book came out in 2008, a handful of self-proclaimed giftedness specialists have reigned over the French media with this vast market of fantasies without any scientific backing. They have always operated on the fringes of the scientific world, but now they have the support of parent associations who are caught in this marketing trap. Jérôme Pellissier, a lecturer in psychosociology, published a remarkable, easy-to-read and very funny book on the subject. I highly recommend reading it. Researchers in psychology finally decided to speak up about four or five years ago, around 2018. I'm referring in particular to Nicolas Gauvry, among the first who had the boldness of pointing out this much-publicized misguidance. This outcry has forced self-proclaimed specialists to publish work with a more flexible description of these children. They have gradually come to recognize that gifted children are actually not that similar to each other. However, they continue to refer to them by group names linked to their IQ. Super gifted, high intellectual potential, intellectually precocious, zebra, etc., etc. This myth has unfortunately managed to infiltrate a great deal of pediatric, institutional, and even political fields. I'm referring here to the 2015 Delobier report, which conclusion was... Well, there's no proof that what these people are saying is right, but considering the family's anxiety, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt, continue to listen to them, and post an advisor in each region until scientific research validates this intuition. But scientific research has not validated anything ever since. So, the pain-generating characteristics that are generally attributed to gifted individuals are not exact? Yes. Numerous meta-studies their cross-referencing of large-scale studies, have been listed in a 2018 special issue of the journal ANAE, titled Le Haut Potentiel en Question. It was demonstrated first that the mental health of these children, when they are not part of those who have to go to therapy, is the same as that of other children. So there is no particular intrinsic psychological fragility linked to high IQ, and therefore even less due to high IQ. Secondly, they confirmed that their brains didn't have any unusual traits, making them equivalent to any other brains. Moreover, they also demonstrated that the concept of an arborescent or tree-like thought structure did not correspond to any observable reality. These studies also showed that the academic and professional success of these children was generally better than that of the rest of the population. They highlighted that these subjects were no more anxious than the general population, and finally, that their sensitivity and emotionality were exactly the same as those of other people. In other words, there's not much left to justify maintaining this entity of gifted individuals 
who are as little alike as people who are blonde-haired, dark-haired, or skilled in martial arts. What is equally fascinating and reassuring is that these latest epidemiological, sociological, and neuroscientific breakthroughs are closely in line with important research in clinical psychology. It is also in line with psychoanalysis, an approach for which high intellect, although widely studied, has always been a non-issue when it comes to therapy. Psychoanalysis refers to overly invested thinking, but this overinvestment is not in itself perceived as pathological. It can indicate staunch defense, as is the case for prodigious mental calculators, as studied by Serge Lebovici. Do you see who I'm referring to? Those patients who, when given a random date, can immediately find its corresponding day in the week. For instance, November 7th, 1932. It was a Tuesday. Serge Lebovici had identified that these patients were, in fact, on the verge of madness, of autistic psychosis, and found that this overinvestment in the logical sphere compensated for their lack of identity. It sustained an over-attachment to reality, and constituted a final defense before sinking into chaos. But this so-called overinvestment can also be the sign of a highly sophisticated intellectual sublimation, masking a real neurosis. Therefore, it can in no way be described as a symptom. In the end, in psychoanalysis, a high IQ proves only what it indicates. A powerful investment of thought, which can be triggered by the worst of psychic threats, but also by sublimated emotional impulses. Therefore, isolating a high IQ and associating it to a specific character trait is pointless. However, many teachers, parents, psychologists, educators do see common features in these children. In fact, these children have very different profiles, which, as I mentioned earlier, results from the context in which we meet them. For example, in my thesis, the sample of children whose IQs were all above 140 came from psychiatric consultations and were in great distress. Some even on the verge of psychosis, others were very depressed, etc. On the other hand, the sample of children I had come across in an ordinary school and who ignored that they were gifted revealed very different profiles, including children with perfectly healthy minds, what we call emotionally stable. My conclusions were that distress and high IQ were independent and that high IQs could not fit into any profile. So I'm very pleased to see all this epidemiological, neuroscientific and psychosocial data emerging, which closely echoes my own psychoanalytical clinical observations. We also need to understand something about our culture, which, to me, seems to be directly linked to all this. Would this incoherent concept of defining equality as a source of despair, you know, being too intelligent to be happy, have been so popular 50 years ago? I don't think so. It comes at a fairly narcissistic time, when children have become their parents' stooges and generational differentiation has been somewhat erased, particularly in terms of authority. Many psychologists, the reliable ones, have raised the idea that today's parents are more into enticement than into education. And this impacts the development of children's psychopathology, that is to say, their symptoms. The majority of those who come into consultation now, whether high IQ or not, show issues related to a lack of boundaries. The children who are raised with a lack of boundaries are characterized by 
a particularly lively psychic agitation. Critical mind, humor, intellectual and or food veracity, intolerance to boredom, irritation when information is repeated, sloppy handwriting, difficulty falling asleep, etc. A lack of distance with people and events, highly perceptive, highly sensitive to injustice, highly empathetic. And an interest in themes related to the extreme, such as dinosaurs, planets or death. When these children, raised with a lack of boundaries, have high IQs, their thinking is caught up in a psychic agitation and generates great veracity. Except that this thirst to learn and to master information also appears to be an unconscious way of feeding an illusion of strength and superiority over adult interlocutors. These children generally have a very low tolerance to failure and to facing difficulty. It is also a way of conjuring a solution to channel their inner self a solution to contain their excitability. And, actually, as soon as they're over with the intellectual task, the psychic agitation resumes. Why am I detailing here the traits of children raised with a lack of boundaries, who represent half of the children consulting psychologists in France today? Because this description matches the one given by our fake giftedness specialists in the media. As you may have gathered, I think that our so-called specialists have attributed this symptomatology, this agitation, to the high IQ of their little patients, when, in fact, it stems from a problem of educational boundaries. And so, without realizing it, they devoted all their theorizing, books, interviews, presentations, conferences, etc., to describing a reality other than the one they thought they were defining. They were simply describing children raised with a lack of boundaries not children with high IQs. And what explains that so many psychologists have fallen for this media hype? As I said, this fantasy of people who are too intelligent to be happy are marginalized by their sense of difference, another bizarre expression by Monique de Carmedec. This fantasy is tempting because it is simple and positive news. I also think that the lack of theory from clinical research of educational boundaries is to blame. In psychology studies, the overwhelming child is still as they were described in the early 20th century literature, misunderstood, unnurtured, and depressed. However, child psychopathology has evolved, and all those involved in child psychiatry today agree that consultations are now as much about too much problems, you know, increasing behavioral disorders, as problems of not enough, inducing depression, for example. I'm talking here about children who are constantly agitated, intolerant to frustration, and violent at times, despite being pampered at home, by parents who are present, healthy, committed, and empathetic. You know, the children who are too curious, too demanding, too generous, too loving, too noisy, too sensitive, too agitated, etc. Psychologists have not been trained to deal with the problem of too much love and attention, and do not know how to guide parents in re-establishing educational boundaries in the family. And the child, who's otherwise happy, sensitive, curious, sociable, etc., is often sent home with a diagnosis that they're fine without any solution to make them less unbearable for those around them. This leaves us in a dead end. What can be done if psychologists are no more willing than parents to realize what the child is calling for through their symptoms? With no diagnosis nor appropriate treatment, these parents are trying to find solutions. And giftedness has been one of these diagnoses. So has been ADHD, ODD, and HSP, for example. What are the consequences for your young patients? It's very pleasant to be told that all our symptoms are due to a superior intelligence. 
anybody would rather receive a compliment than a diagnosis. But the effect is short-lived because the real problem, which lies beneath the symptoms, persists. Some of these children and adolescents who come to us for consultation have been living for years with this floating label instead of an actual diagnosis. It has taken the place of what should have been real care. For some, this has led to anxious concerns about their operating mode. They say they feel different. For others, it has generated a sense of superiority and has created a distance with other people. For example, a contemptuous discourse on the ignorance of their classmates or on the slowness of their teachers. On several occasions, I've heard of tragedies that were partially caused by this fake diagnosis. What advice do you have for parents of children diagnosed as gifted and whose distress has clearly not lessened over the months or years? Here's my advice. If you're thinking of having your child tested to find out if they have a high IQ, I'd recommend not to, because it won't do any good. Children should not be tested for high IQ because high intelligence or giftedness doesn't cause any suffering. This approach will always be wrong. Suffering lies elsewhere, on the emotional side. In addition, I'd like to mention an aspect of the professional code of ethics that I find very important. Like Weschler, who created the intelligence tests that are used all over the world today, I believe that these IQ assessments should only be suggested when there is a suspicion of intellectual difficulties or learning difficulties. Psychologists are supposed to be therapists who select their investigative tools, not IQ salespeople who test children on public request to satisfy parental curiosity. Psychologists should never let themselves be instrumentalized in the exploration and exposure of a child's psyche. It's not harmless, it's even potentially very intrusive, and the child has to be suffering a great deal to justify the exposure of their internal world. Imagine yourself, all of you listeners, between the age of 8 and 10, in front of your parents, before a lady describing in great detail your intelligence and therefore also lack thereof, because we're generally not intelligent in everything. Is it a comfortable scene? Another problem comes from the risk of having average scores disappoint parents or hinder the child's future academic or professional ambitions. Let me explain. I remember a student in engineering, coming from the École Centrale, who came to me for Menza testing and who was top of his class in math. The assessment revealed an average logical reasoning score. I recalculated this score four times and told him so, slightly embarrassed. But he wasn't so surprised and immediately told me that he had worked 200 times harder than the others to prove to his father that he could do it. His performance therefore sprang from more than just his intellectual equipment as measured by IQ. Desire, revenge, ambition, pleasure are all ingredients or drivers decisively involved in self-fulfillment. And yet, they are not assessed by IQ tests. Would I have kept these doors open for this young man if I had tested him at his parents' request when he was 8 years old? With his average score, I think he would have never set out to impress his father. This score might have discouraged him altogether. My advice to parents of children whose symptoms have already been attributed to this IQ figure is to avoid stereotypical solutions such as skipping classes, overstimulation, or too much tolerance to their excess. When a therapist tells you that a highly gifted child can't stay quiet in class, can't wait, and can't tolerate boredom for more than five minutes, they're off the mark. Making an effort has never propelled any child, however intelligent, into insurmountable misery. 
If they find passivity intolerable, it's because there's another kind of problem. For example, depression or a problem with boundaries, perhaps something else, that needs to be treated independently from their IQ. So basically, this is what I want to tell you today, in 2023, about high IQs. I think it's really time for this fantasy of some cursed intelligence to be shattered out of respect for the suffering children who come into consultation and who are calling for a real diagnosis and real treatment, like all other children. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>